got the wrong idea about me, Mr. Valiant. I'm a pawn in this, just like Roger. Can you help me find him? Just name your price, and I'll pay it. Yeah, I bet you would. You gotta have the rabbits to make the scam work. No, 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 I love my husband. You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. Yeah, well, you don't know how hard it is being a man looking at a woman looking the way you do. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and currently in the market for someone to murder her husband, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. I don't think I can afford it. <laughs> Could I? No, you're not, it's not supposed to be about money. You're supposed to seduce them oh, well, into killing your husband. Oh, that's not going to work, so... Yeah, I think you could do it. No. You could get anybody to murder me. No, I really couldn't. I don't I don't have the... You gotta just use your wiles. I don't have the wiles. I really don't. <laughs> you got so many wiles. I really don't. On today's episode, we're celebrating Noir Vember with a film noir, femme fatale, double feature. As we sit down for Nakia's first viewing of Billy Wilder's classic noir, Double Indemnity, from 1944, and Lawrence Kasdan's neo-noir, Body Heat, from 1981. Nakia, cinema fanatic Maria Gates, who runs social media for Turner Classic Movies, coined the hashtag Noirvember and helped turn November into a month-long celebration of film noir. My Twitter feed, which is about 45% film nuts, has been hitting this hashtag hard all month long. Mm -hmm. So I thought we would get in on the action here during the final week of the month. Cheap ploy for... (laughs) Shameless... Social media traction. Shameless tie-in to the hashtag that has probably run its course by this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, You and I talked about film noir during our fourth episode when we watched The Maltese Falcon. Mm Mm-hmm. Which you actually liked, that movie. I did. And I think you like film noir from what you've seen of it. Yes. I think we talked about it a little more when we watched uh, Sunset Boulevard, Mm -hmm. which kind of fits the same category. But I think this is is a genre you relate to. Sure. I like intrigue. There's usually some good fashion happening. Cynicism. Cynicism. (laughs) You know, the dark recesses of human... uh... Emotion and motivations. So, sure, I'm a fan. Some good one-liners. Some good one-liners. Dangerous women. Yes. Double entendre. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're not, I think with two movies to watch, and since we've talked about noir before, we're not going to have a big preliminary discussion today, but we are going to watch two of my favorite examples of the genre. And we'll start with Double Indemnity. Do you know anything about this movie? I don't. Uh, you told me that it involves a femme fatale who, I guess, seduces someone to kill her husband. <laughs> spoiler so. alert. Sure. <laughs> I don't think that's a big spoiler. I think anyone <laughs> looking at the poster probably would have known that. Okay, so this film was released in July of 1944, directed by Billy Wilder. And this is actually, this has got to be some kind of record. This is the third Billy Wilder film we've done. Mm. Because he did Some Like It Hot. Right. And he did Sunset Boulevard. 
So this is not Jack Lemmon dressed as a woman. Well, I'm not going to give away the whole plot of the movie before we watch it. Why don't you his wait lover and see? to kill his husband? <laughs> Ooh, because doesn't he? Isn't it sort of implied that he sails off and then into the sunset with that really rich guy? Yeah. So this would actually be the perfect sequel. Is that okay? Now they're together. He then finds a lover and is like, okay, can finds you a lover to kill kill the rich, the rich husband. Oh. So you get the money. That's how you get the money. That's how you secure the bag. It's all about securing the bag. So okay, that would be. I would absolutely watch that. I think you're. I think Wilder missed an opportunity I there. I really think so. To have Jack Lemmon reprise his role, fascinating, and be planning to knock off Osgood. Yes, yes, I believe his name was Osgood. <laughs> I would so watch that movie. <laughs> okay, so this was based on a novella by the crime writer James M. Kane. And Kane based his novella on a real-life 1927 murder perpetrated by a married Queens, New York woman named Ruth Snyder who got her lover to bump off her husband after taking out a large insurance policy on mm. him with a double indemnity clause. Not that paid suspect at all. In case he died in an accident. Uh, the difference being that those murderers were very quickly identified <laughs> and arrested <laughs> And executed. Oh, God. Yes. And in fact, um, when Ruth Snyder went to the electric chair, photographers then and now are forbidden from taking pictures during executions. A Chicago Tribune photographer on assignment for the New York Daily News managed to sneak in a camera strapped to his ankle and snap a picture of Ruth Snyder in the electric chair as the current was going through her, which then ran on the front page of the New York Daily News. That's horrifying. Became one of the most famous and infamous photographs of the 1920s. We are gross people. (laughs) We are so gross. Ugh. Well, I don't know. I mean, don't you think that if we're going to be executing people, people ought to know what that looks like? We should know what it looks like. Hmm. That's actually a good question. Well, I mean, uh, no. <laughs> I would hope that no one would need to see that. I mean, everybody saw Green Mile, right? <laughs> we know that that's just, we don't, that's not a... Dead man walking. Right, you know, yeah. we've seen, we know what it means yeah. when Percy doesn't put the wet sponge on the head. Like, we just, we just don't, I, I feel like we have that visual, so I don't know. But okay. <laughs> Was oh, she, question, yes. do you know if she was beautiful? Not if she was beautiful strapped into an electric chair. She didn't chair. look good strapped into the chair, right. no. Because this is what's interesting, right? It's uh, like, what's, uh, um, there are all those sort of true crime television shows now, like crimes like Snapped and things like that, that are all about these sort of, these women who, quote unquote, manipulate their lovers into killing their husbands. And they all, none of them are, you know, none of them look like, who's the one, what's her name? Uh not for double indemnity, but Kathleen uh, Turner. Kathleen Tur- like, none of them look like Kathleen Turner. <laughs> <laughs> These are some regular, regular looking broads. And the dudes aren't awesome either. I mean, it's just that's, like. Men are weak. We don't need, you know, you can get us to do what you want. Feel- you don't need to look like Kathleen Turner. Okay. You don't need to be an evil genius. We're not that bright. That's a problem. It is a problem. Okay. For all of us. All right. Proceed. Okay, so this true-life crime story actually inspired Kane's first novel, which was The Postman Always Rings Twice, and then he he went back to it with slight variations for this 1936 novel, Double Indemnity. They sort of share the same basic plot. Mm-hmm. And when this novella came out, at first there was a big bidding war among the Hollywood studios to make Double Indemnity mm-hmm. in 1936. Uh, But then our old friend and nemesis, the Hayes Code, (laughs) the Hayes office, the censorship office, got involved. 
Joseph Breen, the head of the Hayes office, sent a letter out. And again, this is just when the story has come out, with the story was being mm-hmm. published in a magazine. Joseph Breen sent a letter out to all the studios saying, The general low tone and sordid flavor of this story makes it, in our judgment, thoroughly unacceptable for screen presentation before mixed audiences in the theater. So nothing was done with it for another eight years. And then finally, Paramount bought the rights as part of, I think, a package deal for a bunch of James Kane stories. And Billy Wilder was involved to, to make the film. They wrote a treatment. He and a couple of other writers wrote a treatment of the story and submitted that to the Hayes office for approval and got it past them. They had made a couple of variations in the story. Mm-hmm. They had changed it just enough to sneak it past the Hayes code for approval. And then when it came time to write the screenplay itself, Wilder, he couldn't hire Kane, who was already under contract to another studio, to adapt it himself. So Wilder enlisted Raymond Chandler, the famous crime writer, creator of Philip Marlowe. Mm. Chandler had no idea how to write a screenplay, had he never done it before. Um, Didn't know what he was doing. At first he was like, okay, you're going to have to, you know, give me a week. And everybody looked at him like he was crazy. And he went away for a week and he came back with something that was totally unusable. (laughs) And finally Billy Wilder said, okay, you and I are going to write this film together. And literally they sat down in an office for weeks and they hammered out this screenplay. Mm -hmm. They hated each other, as far as we anybody can tell. They fought constantly about everything. <laughs> Wilder says that this was one of Chandler's occasional bouts of sobriety, mm. but that this process drove Chandler back to drink, and he was, you know, drunk most of the time while they were working on this. Yeah, it it was not a it was not a good collaboration, but it turned out to be a very successful collaboration. In fact, the writer of the novel, James Cain, said, It's the only picture I ever saw made from my books that had things in it I wish I had thought of. Mm. So he he approved of the film version. The movie stars Fred McMurray, who at the time was the highest paid actor in Hollywood, and Barbara Stanwyck, who at the time was not only the highest paid actress in Hollywood, but the highest paid woman in America. Wow. Um, So these were two huge stars at the time, neither of whom had ever done anything particularly dark. Mm -hmm. They were both known for lighter stuff. They both resisted doing this movie. Neither of them particularly wanted to do it Mm -hmm. or thought they were right for it. Mm -hmm. But Wilder basically bullied them into it. Barbara Stanwyck tried to turn it down, and Wilder supposedly was like, well, are you an actress or a mouse? Like, what are you afraid of? (laughs) Like, totally bullied these people into doing this movie. And it was a big hit, obviously. And it is now one of the most respected films of that era. Pauline Kael, in her review, says this shrewd, smoothly tawdry thriller directed by Billy Wilder is one of the high points of 1940s films. Double Indemnity is number 29 on the AFI list of the 100 greatest films of all time. The film was nominated for seven Oscars, all of which it lost, unfortunately. A fact that irked director Billy Wilder so much that when they announced someone else as best director at the Oscars, Wilder stuck his foot out and tripped the guy on his way to the podium. Classy. He was pissed off. (laughs) Okay, that's enough preface, I guess. Unless you have any other questions or thoughts, I think we will go watch Double Indemnity and come back and talk about it some more after we watch it. All right. Okay. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. 
until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know Keyes. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of Keyes. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his striped pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make a head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it and uh, somebody else. Only I haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometimes, somewhere, they've got to meet. And welcome back. During the break, Nakia and I watched Double Indemnity. Nakia, this is a film for which I have a lot of affection, and it's definitely one of the quintessential films noir. Mm-hmm. But it was never really one of my personal top five Desert Island favorite films. I think I first saw it when I was in high school, which is when I was watching a lot of old movies for the first time. And I think part of the problem was that by that point, these two actors were overly familiar to me from much lighter Mm -hmm. fare. Um, Fred McMurray was the bumbling, flubber-inventing professor in Disney's The Absent-Minded Professor. (laughs) And then there were just endless reruns of the TV sitcom uh, My Three Sons, in which he played the father. And then Barbara Stanwyck was the tough but noble matriarch Victoria Barclay on the late 60s TV western Big Valley. That's mm-hmm. where I knew her for. She was this very motherly sort of figure. So I think I had trouble then watching this movie and seeing them as sort of sleazy, scheming, <laughs> adulterous lovers. Uh-huh. Um, so I suspect my reaction to this movie when I first saw it was, this would have been a really great movie if it had starred Bogey and Bacall. Mm-hmm. So I never completely warmed up to this movie on an emotional level, I think. Mm -hmm. Even though I've, you know, developed a healthy respect for it since then. So I wanted to hear from someone who did genuinely deeply love this movie. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to our friend Pat Harrigan, Minneapolis-based writer, podcaster, performer, and all-around renaissance man. Because I knew Double Indemnity was one of his favorite movies. So I asked him to send us some thoughts, and here's what Pat had to say. Hi, Michael and Nakia, and thanks for inviting me to talk about Double Indemnity. You know, I've read everything Raymond Chandler has ever published, and I've seen nearly everything Billy Wilder has ever directed. And aside from Chandler's novel, The Long Goodbye, this is my favorite thing either of them ever did. So I'm really excited to hear the episode that you guys come up with. 
So for me, there's just so much in this movie to adore, it's almost hard to pick it apart, but really it does come down to the dialogue, mostly. Uh, since both Chandler and Wilder are favorites of mine, I can see elements of both of their styles throughout the screenplay. And in a lot of ways, they were very similar. They were both very hard-edged and cynical, but they come from very different places. Wilder was an urbane German Jew who escaped the Nazis to come to America. And Chandler, by this time, was a bitter racist uh, with a newly minted career as a successful mystery writer. A sentimental heart. Uh, he was keenly aware of his own failures as a professional and as a human being. So their writing styles turn out to be very different, and in this case, their extremely fraught collaboration worked out really well. Wilder was a really good person to keep Chandler's purple instincts in check, and they took, you know, kind of a B-minus novella by James N. Cain, which was essentially a, a retread of his much better book, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and they turned it into an A-plus movie. So... It is interesting that when you look at the source material, Double Indemnity is is kind of weak, I think, you know, especially if you read it soon after Postman, which is a terrific, absolutely first-rate thriller, and then see that the, mov the movies that were made out of it, uh, it's exactly reversed. Double Indemnity is one of the great American films, as far as I'm concerned, and the best version of Postman, the one with uh, John Garfield and Lana Turner, is pretty good. You know, it's okay, but it's just not even in the same league as this. Now, having said that, I don't want to knock on James Cain too terribly much because a lot of the writing, although most of it is Chandler and Wilder, uh, a lot of it does come from James Cain. Edward G.'s great speech about the actuarial tables, for example, is adapted very closely from the book. But I don't recall that uh, some of the sharper dialogue, like the recurring line about right down the line, baby, right down the line, you know, the doom that the two of them are going to share in this movie. That's not from Kane, and neither is a line like, a little rum would get this up on its feet when Fred McMurray is talking about spiking his iced tea. That sounds like something Raymond Chandler probably said every day of his life. Uh, but even beyond that, you know, I love the acting in this movie. I love Edward G., especially Every line out of Robinson's mouth gives me the purest joy. I could watch him all day long. And although they're a little less charismatic, a little less outgoing, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck are, I think, also terrific in this movie. Barbara Stanwyck is a terrific comic actress. If you ever see her in Preston Sturgis's The Lady Eve, she's great there. She's really underplaying it in this movie, playing a different sort of character. Uh, and Fred McMurray, you know, not a guy that I ever particularly warmed to. He's mostly famous for My Three Sons. Double Indemnity, though, uh, I'm so glad that you're doing it. I love this movie. It's such an improvement over the novel, especially in the ending. In the book, as it turns out, spoiler if you're going to read it, Phyllis turns out to be a straight-up psychopath who not only killed the first Mrs. Diedrichsen, uh, but also various children when she was a nurse in order to get some small sort of property out of it. And the ending is not like the film. The Edward G. character actually allows... Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck to get away because he doesn't want he doesn't want it to come out that someone working for the insurance agency was behind all this. And so in the end, they're on a boat to Mexico and they realize that they'll never get away with it. They have no future together and they're going to commit a murder suicide that night or a double suicide pact that evening. And in the final paragraph of the book, Phyllis winds up appearing something like the angel of death as she comes kind of into her own. Uh, her f own final transformation, Neff describes her as, She's in her stateroom getting ready. She's made her face chalk white, 
with black circles under her eyes and red on her lips and cheeks. She's got that red thing on. It's awful looking. It's just one big square of red silk that she wraps around her, but it's got no armholes, and her hands look like stumps underneath it when she moves them around. She looks like what came aboard the ship to shoot dice for souls in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. So the book turns into a sort of lurid horror movie kind of thing at the end, but the film keeps the tone absolutely perfect, I would say, throughout. So I'm so uh, excited to hear what the two of you come up with uh, watching Double Indemnity. And thanks for allowing me to have a few minutes to talk about it. Goodbye. Okay, thank you, Pat, for sharing your thoughts on Double Indemnity and providing some background about the novel as well. Uh, I encourage our listeners to check out Pat's books. He knows more eclectically weird and interesting stuff than anyone I know. And also, Doctor Who fans should definitely check out his podcast that he co-hosts, Get Off My World, and I'll put the links to these things in the show notes. So, Nakia, I think Pat touched on several of the things I love about this movie, including the dialogue and Edward G. Robinson. I think these Mm. are my two favorite things in this movie. But what did you think of this movie? I loved it, baby. (laughs) Did you, baby? I did, baby. You thought it was a good movie, baby? I thought it was a great movie, baby. (laughs) Now, when I played Pat's comments for you, and he said something about the dialogue, I saw a little look go over your face. Was there? I thought you looked a little askance that maybe you had some quibbles with the dialogue. That's just my face. (laughs) (laughs) And this will not shock Pat. Pat is a listener of the podcast. He knows how we do this. He knows I usually shit on things. I think think you had a little issue with some of the dialogue. I... So the baby thing (laughs) (laughs) sort of made my skin crawl just a little bit. But it's also... I'm just going to start saying that to you all the time, baby. No, because I will punch you in the face, Every sentence I say to you, I'm going to end with the word baby, baby. (laughs) Every time he said it, it became more and more condescending (laughs) and just infantilizing. And I couldn't deal. But at the same time, it totally fits because it's almost like that, that... Tick, and I don't know if this is the same sort of era or not. I'm showing my ignorance here, though this whole podcast is about my general ignorance around (laughs) film. But those sort of stereotypes of 40s, I think it is bad guys, where like, I'm taking the cash, see? I'm going to run with the money, (laughs) see? It's It's just like that sort of (laughs) (laughs) vocal tick or whatever you would call it. It's very stylized dialogue. Um, Yeah, it's like punctuation at the end of the tough guy dialogue. But beyond (laughs) beyond that, I actually thought the dialogue was excellent. Particularly, I mean, you can't deny the sort of power of the writing in that first scene when Neff comes to Dietrich's home and Uh meets Phyllis for the first time and she's standing on top of the stairs in her bathroom and just all the double entendres. In a towel. She's standing up there in a towel. Yes. Yes. Uh, all of the sort of double entendres are flying back and right. forth between about them. insurance yeah. says, and being covered you. and right uncovered you know and so but yeah no I think the dialogue yeah. is just, there's, there's some first class there's some sexual innuendo and banter in that which, scene where did that go when did did we was that never how we talked to each other or I don't I don't think it's ever how human beings yeah, talk to each okay. other but it's how people in movies <laughs> talk to each other we just were never were that smart and it was good that pithy <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's some great lines yeah. in the I like at the end of that scene where she he's leaving and says something and she says she says I wonder what you mean by that and he says I wonder, wonder if, if you, you wonder. wonder yeah like there's all kinds of really good lines in there oh well okay so did you did you buy the tension between them so the, theirs is an interesting relationship yes 
like I said, that first scene, I absolutely bought it. That scene is sort of just crackling with tension mm-hmm. between uh, the two of them. How she sits down in the chair and crosses her legs so yeah. most of her leg is exposed. <laughs> and you see the anklet and he comments on the anklet that she's wearing a number of times in the scene. And, and she kind of shifts her and legs she again. Shifts, and he's sort of sitting, I think he's sitting on the arm of the sofa. At the, so he's sort of a little bit over her and she's sort mm-hmm. of down in this big armchair. So he's basically like, looks like a wolf sort of leering and waiting to pounce on yeah. her. Like, the whole scene is great, but, you know, that first moment at the stairs and then towards the end when he's getting ready to leave and she says something to the effect of, you know, careful, there's a speed limit in this town. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Which, again, it's one thing to write that dialogue. It's another thing to act it and Mm -hmm. have it come across natural and and organic and not feel like a line. Right. Like, if somebody said that to me in real life, I'd just be like, are you... Please get. He's like, no. Like, <laughs> just, get the fuck out of my just house. Just stop. Um, <laughs> so to not seem just ridiculous, right? And and as Pat pointed out, this is this is not James M. Cain's dialogue right. from the novel. Right. This is Chandler. Right. And Wilder um, um, working together. And in fact, they apparently had a fight about that because Wilder wanted to use Cain's dialogue. Mm. And Chandler, who ironically, again, this is, he'd never done a screenplay before, but he said, this shit is not going to work on screen. <laughs> you got to let me rewrite all of the dialogue. And he finally won that battle, and thank God he did. Too bad he was a racist, according to Pat. Well, yes, he was. We're, <laughs> we're going to skip over that for now. So, yeah, so, the, you know, that scene, I totally believed it, and, and the energy was there. And then something happens after they murder her husband mm-hmm. where I'm I'm a little, I lose their motivations a little bit hmm. because neither of them seem particularly concerned about the money and then right. neither of them seem, I mean, she sort of wants it and she's, she's obviously tired of her husband, but then it, it also like, it doesn't seem like love anymore. Like this sort of immediate love that was there before all of a sudden turns into something else that's harder to define. And it may just be that immediate infatuation and the excitement of planning the thing mm-hmm. to be together. And then you do the thing. And then the sort of corrosion of that thing right. to whatever sort of nascent relationship was building starts to complicate things a little bit more but it just starts to feel like why the hell did you do this in the first place because both of you kind of like meh about each other a little bit really so there's, a, there's I think there's a couple of different things I think you're right and I think there's a couple different things happening I think one of them is simply the Hayes Code problem mm. and it it plagues all of these movies mm-hmm. um, so it, it almost happens for me as soon as they get together Mm -hmm. because it feels like all the heat goes out of the relationship at that point and that's because they couldn't show the heat right they could not even show I mean forget showing nudity or sex or anything they could not show the implication that Mm -hmm. they had slept together Mm -hmm. so they couldn't even show them in bed bed, afterwards at most there's an edit in that first scene where she comes to his apartment Mm -hmm. where they first kiss and and you know there's a cut and then when we come back from the cut, they're, they're on sitting the sofa, on the couch. Smoking cigarettes. He's lounging yeah. back a little bit, and she's like fixing her makeup. Yeah. And it's like, okay, we assume they just fucked yeah. in that scene, yeah. but that's all they could do with that. So yeah, the banter was hotter than yeah. the relationship. Yeah. The foreplay was hotter than the relationship, which, which I guess is often truth? true. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> But then I think, I do think that thing, you use the word that 
corrosion Mm -hmm. that sets in. I think that is intentional. He doesn't have much of a conscience, but he has a little bit of a conscience. And it starts to eat away at him as soon as they... It actually, before they even kill him, Mm -hmm. um, because... Well, Conscience, thy name is Lola. Yes, Lola, exactly. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Sure. He almost immediately falls in love with another woman. <laughs> is it love? He's, well, he gets somebody closer to a baby, baby. Um, <laughs> he, Lola was pretty hot, I got to say. Lola was a child. Lola well, was I don't know how old exactly Lola was. I mean... She wasn't 12. She was, you know... Maybe 16-ish. <laughs> 18-ish, you know, okay. Her name was Lola. (laughs) Uh, So, yes, so he meets Lola, and yes, she is very cute, and she's very sort of pure in a way that Phyllis isn't, and he immediately... She's not that pure, well, though. That's not, an important thing. She, that's very true. Because this is noir. Nobody is pure Nobody in is totally movies. pure. Um, but she presents as yeah. pure. Um, but she's sneaking out to meet her... sneaking out to meet her boyfriend, boyfriend, Nino, which is the only other Nino <laughs> oh, I've ever come across in film. The other being the brilliant... Nino Brown from New Jack City, played by <laughs> Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Fuckery. <laughs> Fucking, you know, murderous, misogynistic, uh, big-time crack dealer in New York City. Um, awesome film. Everybody should watch it. Uh, <laughs> but so... Once she said the boyfriend's name was Nino, I was like, oh, he's a bad dude. Yeah. Ninos are only <laughs> terrible people. He's just got a temper. He's just a hothead, he, that guy. Well, and it's also like, ladies, we end up with questionable men because it's like, <laughs> oh, he didn't get enough crow or he wasn't getting his credits in medical school. And then he lost his job because he got, you know, a little fast at the mouth. And it's like, right. okay, well, he probably doesn't have his shit together. So yeah. you probably shouldn't be dating him, but okay. <laughs> But anyway, so that's sort of the first time Neff sort of starts to get these sort of feelings of unease yeah. about the planning. He says, I felt a little right. queer about it with her sitting there. So, yes, Lola is the conscience. Well, but she, well, she's the catalyst for his conscience a little mm-hmm. bit. But the conscience in the film is Keys. Edward G. Robinson. Yes, right. Yes. Who is, as Pat says, a great character. Yes. And that's... What was I read? I think it was an essay I read by Matt Zoller's site. I'll try to find it for the show notes, where he was saying that the traditional noir love triangle mm-hmm. between, you know, the hero, anti-hero, the bad girl, and the good girl, Edward G. Robinson is, is the good, the good girl, girl mm-hmm. in this triangle. Yeah. yeah. When we talk about the sort of, you know, you asked about the, the passion between the two characters of Phyllis and Neff, I think there's an equal, uh, actually a a much deeper relationship between mm-hmm. Neff and Keys. It's it's father and son, but it's also more intimate than that. Mm-hmm. And more tragic because sort of Neff sees himself reflected through the eyes of Keys and he's a better man in Keys' eyes than he actually is. Yes. Yes. Um and that's that is the tragedy of, you know, a great many relationships is when the person you love reflects an ideal of you that you know that you do not measure <laughs> you up to. You can't live up to, right. And he does, two or three times in the movie, he says, I love you too, mm-hmm. to Keys. And in fact, that's the last line yes. of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it does feel more genuine it does. than when he says, I love you, baby, right. to Phyllis. Right. But yeah, the, the Robinson thing is interesting because he's... 
he has that speech where he's trying to convince Neff to be his assistant, mm-hmm. to get out of the sales business, take a pay cut, right. and come desk. over to yeah. being a claims man. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about what it means to be a claims man. And he says, a claims man, Walter, is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. So we have, like, it's all of these authority mm-hmm, figures mm-hmm. all wrapped moral up. Moral figures. Moral figures all wrapped up in this one person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost, he's almost a god figure, mm-hmm. I think, as far as, and again, I think we talked about when we did the Maltese Falcon, we talked about sort of the absence of God, the absence of morality mm-hmm. in these worlds, and everybody's kind of got to make up their own code. Right. To live by. And so in this movie, Keys is the code, mm-hmm. and he's all of those things in this insurance claims right. investigator. You know, he's seen the worst of people doing horrible things. He doesn't spout morality. No, he um, spouts actuarial And tables. in fact, at the end of the movie, Neff is expecting a big speech from him, and Keys is just like, you're all washed up, yeah. Walter. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't give him the big speech. He doesn't talk about morality. He doesn't even talk about being disappointed in him or, or anything. He's just like, yeah, you're done. Yeah. But yeah, so that's, you know, to the extent that there's this moral framework, Keys is definitely it in mm-hmm. this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, so talk to me about uh, talk to me about Phyllis. <laughs> I mean, she's what what this is supposed to be all about here. Phyllis is something. Phyllis is a bored housewife who wants to get rid of her shitty husband. <laughs> depending on who you ask, uh-huh. she either married him out of pity or she murdered to marry him. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's I, I buy that story. I buy Lola's story. About I would. I would Lola's not be surprised. Died. I would not be surprised if she actually did kill Lola's ailing mother in order to become <laughs> Mrs. Dietrich number two, Dietrichson number two. Yeah, she's pretty cold and calculating from moment one. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows exactly what she looks like, and she knows what that does to men. Mm-hmm. And she's very good. She's very good at playing the part of the sort of trod upon housewife who just wants to get away, who just wants to get out from under her, you know, boorish and drinking husband. Yeah. She she kind of makes it his idea. She does. The brilliant insurance man. And I think she says at the end of the movie, in fact, she says, she does. She's like, I, I, I would never was, have done it. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. It was just something I was thinking about. Right. And you actually, you know, until you made came the plan. along. Wearing right. fabulous shades, by the way, in that scene. <laughs> yeah, oh, I should ask you about her clothes. I mean, what's she the, was, what's the verdict? She was on? gorgeous the whole time. Okay. I mean, she was perfect. <laughs> I liked that white pantsuit thing with the shoulder pads. With the shoulder she was pads. Towards the end it was of the very, film. very nice. You know, don't trust a bitch in an anklet. You don't really want. I mean, that's just generally good just advice. Just generally, I think. don't don't trust bitches in anklets because they, <laughs> yeah. Oh, this was my favorite line of uh, of Phyllis's when he's telling her these cautionary stories about women who have tried to mm-hmm. kill their husbands mm-hmm. and gotten caught mm-hmm. and been executed for it. He tells her one, and Phyllis says, "Perhaps it was worth it to her." Yep. Like even though she got caught and was <laughs> executed, maybe it was still worth it to her to kill her husband. He had it coming. <laughs> He had it going. There's a reason why there are lots of those damn stories. Because <laughs> you weigh your options, you go, you know what? <laughs> so do you think she had any conscience of any kind? No. Or any emotional attachment to Naf of any kind? Well, at the end, after she shoots him, <laughs> and right. then before he shoots her, <laughs> she says... 
you know, I've never loved anybody. I have a rotten heart. Yeah. Except, you know, I do. Until just until now. Until just now. After, after I've shot right, you. Right. In that split second after she shoots him. Yeah. Supposedly, she decides that she loves him. Which makes you question what would have happened had she had better aim. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yes. So, in that moment, we can choose to believe that she actually felt something for Neff. I doubt it. Because, again, their relationship really was nothing. It was witty banter. Right. There wasn't, And then they had the sort of convenience of a murder. And that's why you stay with someone. is because, well, we both murdered this person, so we we're going to be right. together, you know, until the end of this trolley ride. Until the end of the trolley ride, exactly. Um, <laughs> other than that's not a whole lot to base a relationship Straight on. Straight down the line. Because somebody at some point is going to be like, this bitch got to go. <laughs> So, you know, I don't think that she ever felt anything for Neff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when she, I think it's the first time she goes to Neff's apartment, when she first sort of placed the idea of getting the accident insurance and he gets all indignant and is like, I know exactly what you're trying to do and I'm right. not going to be any part of that. And then storms out and uh, she comes to visit him and does the whole song and dance of, no, I would never actually do this. It's just something, don't you understand? Mm-hmm. That it's just something that I think about sometimes. And she talks about, being with her husband and Neff is like, so, so, you know, he had money and now he doesn't have money anymore because he lost his, right. his money. Right, when you married him, right. he had money. And now he doesn't. And she was like, I wanted a home. Is that so bad? Like, mm-hmm. I really do. She's a very practical. Most of these women are very practical women. <laughs> it's like, I needed some shit. So I did what I had to I do. I married you expecting to have shit. To and then do you didn't that. have shit. Right. Like, I can't buy shoes. I can't buy hats without you bitching about it. So <laughs> you have to die. Um, oh, yeah. He's an asshole about that, too. He in is that an one, asshole, in his yeah. one scene yeah. there. Yeah. It was a very He's like, we're broke because you keep buying hats. Who needs five hats? Who needs a hat in California? And so, yeah, he's just, he's not a <laughs> yeah. loving So he kind of deserved what he got. I mean, I and to, okay, and women don't have a lot of options in that time. You know, it's a patriarchal system. You got to work with what you got. So if you're not going to buy me things in this little transaction that we call marriage, then you got to go. So. But coming back to that final scene, you know, he says something like, yeah, we're both rotten, but you're a little more rotten. Right. Which, fuck you. Well, then, then we come to that question of after she shoots him and doesn't kill him. And she can't shoot again. Mm-hmm. You know, she says, I never loved you, not you or anyone else. I just used you mm-hmm. until I couldn't shoot you again. And she says, hold me. And he holds her. And then shoots her. And then shoots point. her twice yeah. instantly. Yeah. Like, he doesn't hesitate. Even no. Bang, bang, just yeah. rings out. Yeah. So who's worse? Right. No, he's absolutely a terrible person. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I don't know that we need to weigh the two of them against They're both <laughs> terrible people. Um, she's better dressed, so she wins out in my mind. But yeah, no, he's a terrible person. <laughs> but then I think we get what's supposed to be a little redemption. And it reminded me, we talked about this with Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. too, where in Sunset Boulevard, William Holden kind of sets his good, the good girlfriend mm-hmm. free, mm-hmm. sort of confesses to her what her shit he is yeah. and sets her free. And that's kind of what happens in the end here, too. He could go have Lola. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear that he could walk out of there, frame Nino Mm -hmm. for all of this, and go hook up with Lola. Yeah. And live happily ever after. And after cold-bloodedly killing Phyllis, again, in like the next 30 seconds, he has some kind of crisis of conscience Mm -hmm. where he decides he can't do that. He can't frame Nino. Right. He stops Nino from going into the house and says, here's a nickel. Go call Lola. Lola. She loves you. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I buy that moment. (sighs) 
First of all, I don't think Nino is good for Lola, so that's whether this is Nino a good acting in the first not place good is for Lola. a whole other he's question. Absolutely not, because um, he's just trouble all the way. Um, here's the thing. Here's how little I think of Neff. <laughs> after he shoots, or men in general, men in general. After he shoots Phyllis and like places her on the couch. There's a there's a quick look of he looks quickly at the anklet. I thought he was gonna steal the anklet off her fucking dead ankle. <laughs> like that's how little I think of it. <laughs> I was like, you well, fucker. He, he probably would have, but then that's evidence that he has to worry about. Right. So I mean, maybe this was some sort of residual affection towards Lola, and so he knew that Lola was still in love with Nino despite her best judgment. So he wanted to sort of do this for Lola. I I don't know, but yeah, he that was not a redemptive moment for me <laughs> at all. So he staggers his way to the office, and yes. you know, we loop back to the beginning of the movie. This whole movie has been his dictating mm-hmm. into Keys's dictaphone, his confession. Right. It's a little bit drama queen, but yeah. <laughs> it's like, dude, Ron, man's gonna tell his story. Yeah. And then we get that sweet final scene with Keys. <laughs> yes. He says, I'm going to try to make it to Mexico. And Keys is like, you're not going to make it to the elevator. elevator. And he's right because yeah. he collapses. And Which he maybe could have at least gotten a little bit to Mexico had he not taken the time to <laughs> have this little drama moment. <laughs> to narrate his <laughs> confession. That's a good point. He, he certainly would have made it a lot further. It's one thing to be a dead guy in a pool narrating your own life. <laughs> Um, there was an additional 18 minutes of this film shot. Okay. Where Neff was executed. Oh. We talked earlier about, you know, the morality of showing executions and things. Mm-hmm. They built a gas chamber set. They Jesus. shot the whole thing with keys going to see Neff executed. It's a bummer. And apparently... Wilder decided we didn't need it, that yeah. it was redundant. That no, that little last moment between him and Keys mm-hmm. when Neff is sort of slumped over on the floor because he can't make it to the elevator. It, it's a, he, you know, takes that raggedy ass cigarette out of his pocket. So it's that whole like last cigarette moment of, you know, and, yeah. and throughout, throughout the whole film, Keys has been always like looking for a lighter or for a match for <laughs> right, his cigar. He never, has, he a never light. has a light. And Neff has always been the one to, you know, light the match for him and hand it in so he could light uh, his cigars. And so in this moment, those roles are reversed where Keys now provides the match for um, Neff's cigarette. And so, again, it's a beautifully intimate moment. And I think it's a, you know, it's obvious what's going to happen to him. Like, this is is your last cigarette, friend. Like, this is it. I I think it's one of the great endings in cinema history. And like you said, the final line is sort of, I love you too. And that's just, yeah. yeah. I read the scene in the script of the execution Mm -hmm. ending. And it, it still hit that same note because what happened is after the execution, Keys walks out and takes out a cigar and pats his pockets and he doesn't have a light. Oh. And there's no one there, obviously, yeah. to give him a light. But I still, I think this is better. Yeah. What what'd you think of the murder plot itself? We didn't talk about the actual murder. That was some convoluted shit. For it, a lot. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, I it, it was, was definitely, like, you know, there there are some benefits for sort of knowing the system within which you work and, you know, knowing what someone will believe and won't believe. I thought it was plausibly clever. I think yes. a, a lot of, like, Agatha Christie stuff is just ridiculously clever. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody would ever think of that and it would never work yeah. the way you've planned it out. This, I thought, was plausibly clever. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, there weren't any... Except for the fact that Fred McMurray is, like, four feet taller than that dude. Like, he's not inconspicuous. (laughs) 
<laughs> so you want somebody who can blend in a little bit, but okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these films sort of rely on someone making a dumb mistake. Mm-hmm. And that didn't really happen here. They just happened to have a very smart insurance person. Right. Yeah, the only mistake, and this, again, it's a clever bit of writing, is Keyes realizes that, hey, if this guy had accident insurance and then broke his leg, why didn't, why he, didn't he file a claim? Yeah. Which I think is actually a really clever... Yeah. It, it, it is the kind of thing that you wouldn't think of when mm-hmm. you were planning this perfect murder, and it's very plausible. Well, the perfect murder plan didn't include him breaking his leg initially. Right, He was exactly. just supposed to go get yeah. on the train. And so, that I mean, that was just like, okay, well, he's just going to have to get on with a broken foot, and they didn't think that that would raise a flag. Right. Now, Keyes is preternaturally... He's ridiculous. He's Sherlock Holmes of the yeah, insurance like business. He does not want to pay anybody any Because his money. next leap from there was to figure out the entire plan, right. except for the fact that right. it was Neff that did it. But <laughs> he had close. everything down. I think the only... I mean, lots of things can go wrong. And we have, we've watched some films where one of my hard and fast rules when you're going to commit a crime is know your crew. Mm-hmm. And people pick shitty crews um, <laughs> and make dumb mistakes. But this one, the crew was pretty solid. Nobody made any big mistakes. Problem is, when you murder they, someone... They almost couldn't get that car started. They almost couldn't that get that car started. Moment. That was a little bit of a moment. But otherwise, <laughs> you know, it, it went clean. Um, that was, I read, McMurray fought with Wilder about that. Because he was like, it's going on too long. Like, it won't play. Uh, it's like, I'm taking too long doing this. Mm, People aren't going to buy it. And Wilder was no, like, nope, hold it. Builds it builds attention. Hold yeah. it. And you he was right. Yeah. Once you murder someone in partnership, one of those people has to die or go to jail. Like, it just... Well, you're on the trolley. Like I mean, it's just... It's not... That's where... Like, it's going to end badly because it's two people who have done something terrible. And eventually, one person, at least one person, is going to either rat you out or try to kill you. Is there anyone in your life you trust enough to commit murder with? No! Because human beings are inherently what? not even me <laughs> self-preserving beings. Not even I you. wouldn't be top five, would I? No, actually? yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Number one, <laughs> like, there's a whole bunch of problems wrong with you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't sneak the anywhere because you're a loud ass vape thing. Like if we were trying to sneak somewhere, <laughs> you just hear like the bubbling of your vape. I would have to kick the shit out of you. Like me- it just wouldn't. You're the one who's incapable of whispering when you need to whisper. <laughs> That's fine. You're the one who gets louder no, when you're trying to be secretive. But we don't have to talk. Like, we would have the plan all laid out, and we'd be wherever we need to be, and there would be no need to talk, but I'd hear, gurgle, gurgle, gurgle from your fucking vape machine. It's like, okay, we're done. Or you'd cough because you cough. Or, like, it would just, it just wouldn't. You can't run in your shoes. You so can't I don't... carry a body. <laughs> um, like, there's just a whole bunch of things. Like, I just. All right. Well, it's it's a moot point because if it ever happens, one of us is going to be murdering the other. So we're not, gonna, not we're going not to be in on what it I'm together. Is, I'm not going to jail. Okay. <laughs> Any final thoughts about double indemnity? Um, we didn't talk about the cinematography. I thought it was beautifully filmed. Beautifully filmed. Um, there was a moment that, again, that sort of first scene when he comes to um, Dietrichson's home, 
where I think that was a one point, I think, where the narration I felt like was a little bit overkill because he uh-huh. was sort of describing everything that Neff was doing, that he was doing in the scene. Right. Yeah. Um, it's novel. Right. It's a novelist narration. And I think at that moment you didn't, like he was describing sort of how the room was stale from last night's uh, cigar mm-hmm. smoke. And you didn't really need that because the sort of beauty of that shot was, it was, as is the case with the noir films that we've watched, the interiors tend to be dark and. It's all about sort of shadow and light Right, the play. high contrast. Mm-hmm. So you had the sort of California sunlight coming in through the blinds, but the room was still pretty dark. But you could see the sort of dust in the air yeah. and the sort of texture of the whole thing. So I thought it was really, and, really well shot. And actually, before right before we get inside that house, mm-hmm. that opening scene is so bright. Yeah. It's just all California sunlight. Mm-hmm. It's so brightly lit. There's kids playing yeah. baseball in the street. That's like before the fall. Right, right. That's like paradise before the fall. And yeah. then he goes into the house mm-hmm. and starts down this dark path. Yeah. So a classic? Yeah, I think it is a legitimate classic. Okay. You ready to move on to our next film? Sure. Which is, it's not It's not like it's a remake of Double Indemnity, but mm-hmm. it is a similar sort of story. It is very consciously a homage to movies like this and to Double Indemnity in particular, I think. Mm-hmm. And it is the post Hayes Code version of this story. So they can have sex on screen, is what you're telling me? <laughs> It's hot in Miranda Beach this summer, and Ned Racine is waiting. Waiting for something special to happen in his life. I'm really disappointed in you, Racine. I've been living vicariously off of you for years. You shut up on me now, I only have my wife. There's nothing to tell her, we have a lonely life. Hmm? And then, something special does happen. You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. What else do you like? Lazy, ugly, horny? I got them all. You don't look lazy. (laughs) Well, I don't know much about her, except what I've seen. My temperature runs a couple of degrees high, around 100. I don't mind the engine or something. Maybe you need a tune-up. Don't tell me. You have just the right tool. But Ned Racine isn't ready for what happens next. When he gets out, people try to kill each other. Pretty soon, people think the old rules are not in effect. Start to break them, figure nobody will care, because it's emergency time. Time out. No, Ned, please don't. Don't talk about it. Talk is dangerous. Sometimes it makes things happen. It makes them real. Ned, you've messed up before and you'll mess up again. It's your nature. But there have always been small time. And this might not be. William Hurt. Kathleen Turner. And Richard Crenna. In Body Heat. The temperature rises. The suspense begins. Okay, during the break, Nikki and I watched the second half of our film noir double feature, Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat from 1981. 
And Nakia, I didn't do any uh, background on this before the break, so let's do a little at the top here first. Uh, 1981, Lawrence Kasdan was a screenwriter, and he had made a name for himself as the screenwriter of two pretty big movies that had come out in the past 24 months. The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he, with the help of George Lucas, was able to turn that cachet into the opportunity to direct, and Body Heat was his first film. Two years later, he would have a massive critical and commercial hit with The Big Chill, and follow that success with a decent, though decidedly mixed bag of films, including good movies like The Accidental Tourist and Silverado, okay movies like Grand Canyon and Mumford, and terrible movies like the Stephen King adaptation Dreamcatcher. He's also continued to work as a screenwriter on films he didn't direct, including The Bodyguard, Star Wars The Force Awakens, and Solo A Star Wars Story. I like Lawrence Kasdan. I think he is one of those directors who frequently makes movies about movies. Um, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark can be seen that way. I think Silverado, these are movies that, as much as they may work in their respective genres, they're also about, you know, movie westerns or movie adventure Mm -hmm. films. Um, And I think that's what Body Heat is, too, very consciously and very deliberately. Kasdan set out to make a 1940s film noir updated for the 1980s. Kasdan apparently initially offered the male lead role to square-jawed Superman himself, Christopher Reeve, who turned it down saying he didn't think he could play a sleazy lawyer. So William Hurt in his third film got the part and I think managed the sleazy lawyer thing much more convincingly. And Kathleen Turner, at that point, was working on stage and on a soap opera. Uh, She had never made a movie. She had read the script for Body Heat and thought it was the best part for a woman in years, but couldn't get an audition. However, by coincidence, she was in L.A. auditioning for a mud wrestling picture, (laughs) which she did not get, strangely enough. And she caught the eye of the casting director, who was also casting Body Heat. And had a read for Lawrence Kasdan, and Kasdan basically said, that's exactly what I had in mind for this mm. part. She got praise from another source, which leads us into why we're doing this as a double feature. Barbara Stanwyck apparently sent her a note after seeing Body Heat and said, the only person who could have done that better than you is me. Nice. <laughs> so, I mean, this was, everyone noticed the similarities between Body Heat and Double Indemnity. It was pretty hard to miss. Mm-hmm. Some critics were a little sniffy about it. Uh, Janet Maslin in the New York Times said Body Heat was skillfully, though slavishly, derived from 1940s film noir classics. They don't make movies like that anymore, Maslin wrote, but oh, how they try. Pauline Kael was actually kind of cruel about Kathleen Turner's performance being a watered-down, ridiculous play on better actresses like Lauren Bacall. Mm. Um, I don't agree with that (laughs) assessment. But for the most part, the film got great reviews. Vincent Canby, also in the New York Times, wrote Body Heat is one of the year's most elegant surprises, the steamiest, most thoroughly satisfying melodrama about love, lust, and greed to be seen since Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity and Tay Garnett's The Postman Always Rings Twice. Lawrence Kasdan, heretofore known as a screenwriter, suddenly emerges as a member of the American directing elite. That's hard to imagine a better first review than that in the New York Times. 
Roger Ebert wrote, The best noirs were made in the 1940s and 50s before directors consciously knew what they were doing. And yet, if bad modern noir can play like a parody, good noir still has the power to seduce. Yes, Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat is aware of the films that inspired it, especially Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, but it has a power that transcends its sources. Body Heat is good enough to make film noir play like we hadn't seen it before. Nakia, what did you think of Body Heat? I liked it. I think I, if I were to choose, and I guess you don't really have to choose. I mean, those, these two movies can sort of exist and stand on their own merits. I probably prefer Original Recipe to... Um, <laughs> extra Crispy. To Extra Crispy, but I did enjoy it. It's interesting because I think I like Walter better than Ned. Walter and Double Indemnity better than Ned in Buddy right. Okay. Yes, but I like Maddie more than... Phyllis. Phyllis. <laughs> Okay, so the Fred McMurray-Kathleen Turner version of this would have been the perfect <laughs> amalgam well, of these two films. I mean, I think she would probably eat Fred McMurray alive. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, think Fred could keep up with Kathleen but, Turner. <laughs> so I think what I liked about Walter was that it felt like there was an arc. Mm. Like, it felt like he started out as a decently moral human being. Mm, well, that might be an exaggeration, I mean, but I know what you mean. Sort of. Whereas with Ned, he felt like a smarmy asshole from Jump, and he felt dumber uh, than Walter. Yeah, I think I think that's right. So I think that in the porn stash didn't work for me. Yeah. I think he is less likable yeah. than, than Walter Neff is in Double Indemnity. Like, Walter's obviously not a good person, but there was still a, a streak of integrity a little bit about him. Mm. And he was smarter. And he was smarter. He was good at his job, whereas Ned right. is a bad lawyer. He's a shitty the lawyer. The first thing we learn about him is that he's, he's a terrible, bad lawyer. He's a terrible, lawyer. And he's just not particularly bright. And he's sleeping with waitresses. Yeah. and He's just a sleazeball. So I think, I think that's why I lean a little bit more towards Walter, despite his baby tick. But, and this is no knock, obviously, to Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, she was fucking fierce in that movie. Mm -hmm. It's easier for me to see why someone would immediately fall in deep, stupid lust with <laughs> Kathleen Turner. Yeah, I agree. Like, just... I would absolutely kill for Kathleen I Turner. See it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I might move some furniture for Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> I'm probably not going to kill for Barbara Stanwyck. And it's just the whole package, right? It is, obviously, she's a gorgeous woman, but it's also that voice... Mm -hmm. And just her whole, the, the sort of whole physicality about her. So it just felt a little bit more believable that someone would allow themselves to fall so sort of deeply into her. And that, she's smarter, too, And I she's think. smarter. And, and fact, she, she lives. Right. She gets away with right. it. Whereas <laughs> she Barbara gets Stanwyck her money not. and she goes to her <laughs> exotic island there she's always wanted to, to live on. So, yeah. And... I think one of the things I said when we were talking about double indemnity and the dialogue and sort of how hyper stylized it was, and yet it still felt, it didn't feel false. Mm -hmm. With body heat, you obviously couldn't do that same sort of language. Like it just wouldn't work. And right. Like, the 40s. Right. You just, you couldn't, you couldn't, it, it, would, it would feel, would it would work. look ridiculous and it would feel ridiculous. But because of that, because you have to sort of bring it slightly back down to earth 
I don't know. There's more of a seediness to it. Yeah. Well, what you what you said about double indemnity is that it's hard to make lines like that not sound like a line. Right. And here, everything Ned it says sounds like a line. Sounds like yeah. a pickup line. Yeah. And it also it may be the mustache. And when she calls him on it, which she yeah. does a couple of times, he says, "Oh no, I'm not that guy." Yeah. You know. Oh no, I wasn't. I didn't mean to yeah. be sleazy, but he is sleazy. He's absolutely that guy. This is a great second watch movie because you watch it the first time, and you know Ned is the the point of view character. Mm-hmm. But you watch it the second time and see her as the hero of this, mm-hmm. and she, and he is just this pathetic guy. Yeah. And she tells him throughout. Mm -hmm. She says, one of the first things she says to him is, you're not very bright, are you? I like like that that in a man. man. (laughs) (laughs) She, She got her mark. And then later she says something about, you know, most men are little boys. Mm-hmm. And she convinces him that she thinks he's the exception to right. that. But he's not no, the exception to that. No, she's talking about him as well. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, there are a number of times throughout that I think she's just sort of straight up dissing him to his face. And he doesn't quite <laughs> get what's going on, which I respect. When they are sitting together at the bar, having their little sort of tete-a-tete. And she says something along the lines like, you know... Most men, when they catch a whiff of you, they stalk you like a hound. And it's yeah. just like this. this, this like, <laughs> and like, I'm talking about you. And right. Like, like, and again, you know? he's like, he's like, yeah, no, I yeah. hate men like that. That's I'm terrible. Like yeah, that. no. Um, so <laughs> it's just even though I just stalked you to this bar in your neighborhood that I don't live in. So she is a, a brilliant character. Here's the thing. Okay. A lot of us put quotes in our high school yearbooks of things we want to do <laughs> and the people we want to be. Very few of us Very follow through Very few of us that. actually get to that mountaintop. She did. She said, I want to be rich and, and live, live on an exotic, exotic land. Yeah. <laughs> and she did. And she was going to get that. So, you know, that's drive and determination that you got to respect. <laughs> I like those early scenes. And again, it's... Uh, a second watch of this movie, those early scenes, you realize the extent to which she is just auditioning him. Mm-hmm. She is just testing him out. She's trying to see, can I get him to do exactly what I need him to do? You know, when I say no to him, will he go away? Mm-hmm. If I push him, will he be violent? Yeah. You know, that scene, that famous scene where he smashes yeah. through the glass to get to her. Property it's like, damage it's is so all, sexy. You know. And I'm sure she had a plan B and a plan C if this guy didn't work out. But all of that is just her testing him to see. How stupid he is. Right. And if he can fulfill Mm -hmm. his part in her plan. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about Kathleen Turner then. So she's kind of amazing. She's ridiculous. Yeah. And she never, she didn't end up, I think, having the career that she deserved. Mm -hmm. And I think there were a couple of factors to that. I think one of them is she suffers from rheumatoid arthritis that she was diagnosed with in the 90s and that curtailed Mm -hmm. a lot of what she could do. Mm -hmm. Part of it is that she is very outspoken. She gives no fucks. Quote, unquote, difficult. Yeah. Yeah. She hates Hollywood. She's a New York actress. So she said every time she went to Hollywood, she got disgusted and got back on a plane (laughs) and went back to New York. Um, She was very outspoken about the objectification, Mm -hmm. the gross side of it. Um, she said Michael Douglas, who she made a couple of movies with, told her early on that he, Warren Beatty, and Jack Nicholson had a bet to see who would get her. Oh, God. Yeah. And she makes a point in interviews to say that none of them ever did. <laughs> but So that whole side of it, and she's just, again, she just gives no fucks and says whatever she wants. And I also think she made interesting choices throughout her career, even when she was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. 
like the next movie she made after Body Heat, which was, you know, a huge debut mm-hmm. and everyone was calling her a, you know, sexual icon already. <laughs> she made a comedy with Steve Martin called The Man with Two Brains, in which she basically parodied the femme fatale figure mm-hmm. in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. Again, that's another sort of parody of her own image that, you know, I'm not bad. I'm, I'm just, just drawn, drawn that way. way kind of thing. She's just one of the great dames of <laughs> Hollywood from that era. And I think she's great here. She is. I think it's very clear from the moment, you know, that it's a great scene of he's at some sort of like outdoor concert or something. Mm-hmm. And he's standing at the back of the audience and the, the rest of the audience are seated in front of yes. him. And you just see this woman get up from the audience and walk towards, and she's in like this white dress and the slit is just a little bit too high. And, you know, <laughs> it's, the, it's pretty high. The breeze. And is that is what you're watching. And, that's that what watch, and, and even I'm just you. like, oh, that bitch is hot. And it's like, <laughs> it's like you know, and he, he is drawn to her yeah, he and can't transfixed. take his eyes off of her. And she just sort of coolly walks up and, the aisle and over and he, you know, and she doesn't look her. at him. Not at all. That's no. the thing. Again, because she knows she doesn't like, have to. When you watch this movie again, like, you know, she picked him out. Yeah. She knows exactly what she's doing. She needs to get this guy's attention. Mm-hmm. She walks right by him. She doesn't even glance yeah, at him. Because she doesn't have to. Yeah. She doesn't have great. to. It's a perfect scene. And then they do their sort of little back and forth of, you know, she does the whole I'm married thing. And, yeah, are you happily married? Right. And she's like, that's not your business. And <laughs> da, 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 da. And um, he gets, they, he buys them both um, snow cones. And she spills her snow cone on her top. Yeah. And um, she's like, can you go get me a napkin to get this cleaned off? And he was like, yeah, I'll even wipe it for you. And she says something like, why won't you lick it off or something like that? And he just is totally thrown by that. Like the fact that she would say something that's typically a masculine, aggressive thing to say. Right. Um, He's doing the guy thing of being sexually provocative. And then she just. She's like, I double dog dare you. I can play that game, throw that right back at you. And then she's gone when he comes back out. It's just a very cool move. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, no, she's. She's perfect. And Ned is not, as you already idiot. said. He's just an idiot. I think my favorite thing with Ned in this film is when she gives him the hat. Mm, yeah. And he tries to do that cool move. Yeah. The thing where people in the, again, in like film noir films. Yeah. Again, films, it's a, it's a right. self-consciously, it's a like, I know what kind thing. of movie I'm making move on Kesley's Tries part. to throw his hat and land it on the hat <laughs> rack. <laughs> yeah. And totally misses. Like, because you're not that guy. Right. You're not. When you she know. first gives it to him, he looks at himself in the window right. of the car. And he's wearing like a pink polo yeah. shirt under it. It does It not just looks him. wrong. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you are not that guy. Right. You're not bogey. You and and that scene, that scene in the office where yeah. he tries to throw it onto the hat rack and misses. He should have just dropped out right then. He should have just known, right. like, I am not the star of this movie not that I think all. I am. Not at all. The thing with William Hurt, though, he has one of those voices. Where is he from? I don't know. Because he has one of those voices that always sounds like you always want to punch William Hurt in the face. Because he <laughs> sounds so condescending and just smarmy. There's just something about the way that he... And I need to go back and look at what else I've seen. But I feel like every time I see him, I'm just like, you just sound like an asshole. I was going to say, you just said you've never seen right, him in another but movie. I feel like, but even in Big now Chill. Now you decided he's an asshole where, in every no, movie. No, but when, even in Big Chill, where he's like a nice dude in Big Chill. Uh, yeah, well, he's a drug dealer, well, but yeah. I mean, but he's nice. <laughs> <laughs> There's just this this like elitism about his voice that isn't earned. It's like, but you you're putting yourself somewhere where you do not deserve to be. So and it always it works. Like and it obviously works here because 
he thinks he's smarter by half than what he actually is. Right. I think one of the sort of great moments is, you know, once he's decided or he thinks he's decided that they are going to kill Maddie's husband. And he goes to, I guess, a former client of his played by Mickey Rourke. Yes, I love that. That's one of my favorite scenes. It's a great scene. Um, and in fact, when we did the... Um, in our Dog Day Afternoon episode, we talked about bad criminals. Mm. And I opened that episode with that speech of Mickey Rourke's. Yes. yes. And that's a perfect sort of, you think, you know, you've got this all figured right. out. And if you think you got the 25 things down that could possibly right. go wrong Anytime you crime, commit a crime, there's 50 ways you can fuck up. If you think of 25 of them, you're a genius. And you're no genius. And you ain't no genius. But he thinks he is. He right. thinks he's got it. Yeah. And from, you know, moment one, he's been the sap. He's been the pansy and he yeah. has nothing under control. <laughs> and there's a there are actually a lot of great like one on one conversations in this film. That moment when, you know, towards the end of the film, shit is falling apart and you mm-hmm. just sort of feel the news sort of tightening around his neck. He's out for a run at night and he runs into his old friend who's also a lawyer played by um, Ted Danson. Ted Danson. Yeah. And they're like on this pier. And Ted Danson's basically standing there saying, look, it, we know it's you. Like, everything is pointing to you. Yeah. You know, you need to figure your shit out. You need to deal with it. And the look on his William Hurt's face is just like, still thinking he could maybe figure it out and outsmart and mm-hmm. come up with something. But realizing that at no point did he have this under control. <laughs> We should talk about these supporting characters because I think yes. they, they do. They're one of the things that makes this a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, we have Ted Danson's dancing district attorney. <laughs> it's <laughs> a weird character. Yes. It's a great character. It's, he's great in it, but it's an odd, it's an odd character note of just like, oh, and this is the lawyer and he dances. Yeah. And like, it's, a, it's a very weird little <laughs> touch. Uh, and then we have Jay Preston's cop, Oscar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are his two best friends. Yes. And they sort of fulfill that Edward G. Robinson the role between role. Mm-hmm. them of being both his conscience and the people that are pursuing him and right. you know, seeking justice. Right. And I like the scene towards the end. I think it's that same scene you're talking about where he at towards the end where he's talking to Lowenstein. Mm-hmm. And this is after the guy's been murdered and they have figured, like you said, they've already figured out that or was involved and he says he says the more i find out about maddie's husband you know the less sad i am that he <laughs> right it sounds like he was a bad guy yeah. and i'm not sad he's dead and i don't care who got rich off of it but oscar's not like that right. so there's that yeah. you know we talked about that moral universe thing it's mm-hmm. like oscar believes in right and, and wrong. i think he even he even says something like i've got my own rules yeah. or i've got my own standards mm-hmm. but oscar lives by a different code mm-hmm. and oscar is gonna fucking nail your ass to the wall yeah is basically what he's telling him. Yeah. Um, and Oscar talked about rules right at the beginning of the movie. He did. He sort of set this, he did sort of a magical Negro speech a little bit. Yeah. Um, where <laughs> <laughs> he talked about the sort of, again, going back to that idea of like corrosion, the sort of corrosive power of the heat. Yes. And how it changes people. Yeah. And it makes people, you know, more prone to entertain their baser instincts. Right. He said it puts people in crisis yeah. mode and they start thinking the rules don't apply. So it sort of sets the stage of like the sort of compromised moral universe that this film is operating in. It's like it's too damn hot and anything can happen when it's too damn hot. Yeah. Um, which we've seen comes up in a film quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's we've, all we've about, talked about it before. Yeah, I mean, Do the Right Thing is all about it was too fucking yeah. hot that day. And, and it Dog was Day just, Afternoon you know, Dog is Day like Afternoon that. is too fucking hot. And so this idea that, you know, it's a, a natural pressure cooker and, and something's going to happen before the heat breaks. And I mean, this film does an amazing job of just conveying heat 
Yes. And convey like just oppressive heat. One, everyone is walking around totally sweating through their clothes. Yeah. Constantly looking for something to drink or ice or just a, to catch a quick breeze. And in the same way that scene, the, the sort of first scene in um, at Dietrichson's home where he talked about the sort of musty cigar smoke of the room and how, and you could see the sort of particulates in the air. Yeah. The, the, the sort of texture of the air through this film is so just thick. Like it yeah. just it feels humid and sticky and smoky. And the night of the murder, it's ridiculously foggy that you can't even see, you know, two feet in front of your face. And you will you will be more impressed by that when I tell you this was shot in winter. Wow. And they were all cold as shit. That is impressive. Apparently the crew was all bundled up in like mufflers and stuff, spraying down William Hurt oh. and Kathleen Turner with fake sweat to shoot their sultry scenes. That fucking sucks. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That wasn't that's impressive. Yeah, I, it, I would never have known no. that looking at this movie. No. Uh, we haven't talked about the sex, you know. We double indemnity. We <laughs> talked about how they had to skip over all of the sex mm-hmm. here. Not no, so you much. got you got all of the sex, and this was pretty explicit for even 1981. Yeah, that that was a lot of sex. Um, there was random sex with him and the broads that we never see again. Yeah, and then it was just marathon sex with Kathleen Turner for the, the duration of the film. Um, a lot of full frontal on her part. Um, Not a lot of full frontal. Oh, well, boob. Yes. I should say, yeah. And, and, it, and it's weird how she is naked or nearly naked every time she convinces him to do something. Isn't that, that weird? Yeah, it, it's funny. It's a weird how coincidence. That works. <laughs> Let's talk about the will. <laughs> and, you know. Yeah, that's... Your brains are primordial. Um... <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it was very explicit. And was that an anal sex scene? That is how I read it, yes. Okay. And I would be hard-pressed to think of another mainstream movie from that That time period that had an anal sex. Yeah. And I think it could fly past people if they weren't thinking about it. But it's the point where he says, are you okay? You know, he's "Mm." behind her. Yeah. So, yes, that's how I read that. (laughs) So, yeah, I was like, oh, okay. All right. So, (laughs) we're going there. Um, And they were taking an ice bath afterwards. So, both were in pain. Yeah, um, he says something about being sore, and she says, you've yeah, got a lot of Right, nerve. yeah, so I think that that's what's happening there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, this was much more explicit uh, than Double Indemnity. And, again, it's just it's this sort of another manifestation of just heat, you know, naked bodies, and it's hot, and, they're, you know, it's just... So did that make you buy the relationship more here than you did in Double Indemnity? I think so, which is probably terrible. Um <laughs> But they did genuinely seem to be very hot for each other, which, you know, I guess either she's really good at faking it or she was enjoying herself and also planning to murder him. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can do both. That's what she says, actually. Kathleen Turner, people have asked mm-hmm. her that question. And they've asked her, you know, did he? Did she really love him or, you know, was she really into it at all? And she says, yeah, he, Maddie may have loved him and the sex was probably great. Mm-hmm. And she said Maddie was not the sort of person who thought love and sex were that important. Right. So she enjoyed it and she may have even cared about him, but right. that was not. It didn't change her where mission. Her <laughs> sights were set. Again, respect. I knew so you would respect her. Much Get respect. Paid. That is your Secure bottom line. the bag. That is all you need to do. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> but she, I mean, yeah, she's just, he was a fucking idiot. <laughs> just 
even after, so they murder her husband. Yeah. And then the husband's main lawyer, I guess, calls William Hurt and is like, hey. <laughs> Got this new will. There's a new will here, which was something that. He had discussed with Maddie. He was like, don't, we can't do a new will because yeah. it's going to look too suspicious. And, yeah. you know, we cannot do that. And she was like, okay, fine. She went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> That's a great scene because he has to walk into that right. meeting having no, no idea. idea. He hasn't been able to get a hold of her to find out what the hell she wrote in this will. He's got to bluff his way through that entire scene. It's a great it's perfect. scene of and tension. And she plays it so coolly. And so she has gone ahead and forged his signature. Yeah. On a will that she purposefully miss did wrong did right, wrong did wrong so that wrote something illegal in right so that it would be determined that her husband died in test state and all of his assets would be transferred to her yes which is clever yes she didn't rewrite the will to say no. I leave everything to my wife she rewrote the will to be invalid right but so it's, it's everything awesome would come because she's like. She did it because she knew he was a fuck up. So <laughs> she's like, I'm just going to do, I know, because I know you, and right. I know you fucked up on other cases. That's why she picked him, because right. he's a bad lawyer. And so I was like, so I'm just going to make you look bad again. <laughs> and rely on the fact that there's going to be like, oh, well, this is William Hurt being a dumbass again. And everybody in that room is shitting yeah. on him. Yeah. The other lawyer is like, I, I, I came up here. I hope you get a judge that is as dumb as you <laughs> right. that will let me that get had the same through. kind of training you had. It's great. It's great. So there's just like that double of like, and I'm going to make you look like an idiot in front of your colleagues. And then even when he starts figuring shit out, she's still way out of him. Still. Like his figuring it out was part of her mm-hmm. plan too. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. So he runs into an old colleague of his who was part of the case that he fucked up however long ago. Yeah. And that guy tells him that he ran into Maddie, you know, how, like six, a year a ago, year or, ago something. or something. And he's like, oh, I did you a favor and I sent her your way so you could yeah. get some work. And it like, you know, light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, so she, <laughs> and did you tell her about the case that I fucked up on? He's like, yeah. oh yeah, I told her. <laughs> it's just like, okay. So she knew and she chose me because she knew I was a terrible lawyer. And that's where you look back at the beginning of the mm-hmm. film and that very first scene where she stands up and walks past him. And it's like, that was her setting the yeah. hook right there. Yeah, was... and it was so easy. Yeah, so easy. Well, we're not very bright. No, you really aren't. You really aren't. But to be fair, it does take a certain type of woman. I don't. It, that's not every woman that can do that. So do you? Do you judge Maddie for all of this? Not really. <laughs> not a whole lot. I mean, as uh, Lowenstein said, her husband was not a great person. He's not not a good guy. So you know. I do like, I like the scene when they de- they decide they're going to kill him. And I like William Hurt says, let's not pretend he deserves it. Right. Like, this man is going to die because, we because want it's to. convenient yeah. for us. Yeah. Let's not have any illusions about yeah. that. But yeah, no, he's, Richard Crenna's, no. he's not, not a good guy. He's not a good dude. And that scene they have in the restaurant where he has, mm. he has dinner with the two of them. It's kind of Richard Crenna who talks him into murdering Richard Crenna. Yeah, well, he's like, if I found out that anyone was sleeping with my wife, I'd kill them. Like, yeah, but then he's also, he's talking about people who can't do what's necessary. Mm. That's his, he hates people who can't do what's mm. necessary. Mm-hmm. People who want the big score, but aren't willing to do what's necessary. And William Hurt says, do you mean they're not willing to earn it? And Richard Crenna laughs. He's right. like, no, that's yeah, not that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, they're not willing, you know, they don't have the balls right. to do what's necessary. And that's, and William Hurt's like, yeah, I know guys like that. I'm kind of like that. And that's when he decides, okay, well, I guess we'll kill this guy. (laughs) All right. Did the ending of the film work for you? With the boathouse? With the boathouse. And then we get kind of the twist E ending. I mean, that's a a lot. 
Um, it, it's a little too... It takes, like, one twist too many, I think, right at the end. Yeah, because I, f- I feel like that... I don't know, maybe... Again, she was a very... I think he called her relentless, so it is possible that she's been, like, planning this since senior year of high school, where she's just like, yeah. Right. <laughs> We're going to have to get set the wheels in motion here. Yeah, um, he's trying to tell it to Oscar, and Oscar's like, this is ridiculous. Right, this doesn't make any this sense. This woman would have to be some kind of evil super genius. And he's like, yes, exactly. And now she you, is. Now you understand. Um, but yeah, so one of the big missing pieces of the case is that, you know, they find her husband's body, but he doesn't have his glasses on, and he always wears glasses. Right. So there's this big crisis about, okay, well, where are the glasses? And Maddie, being the genius that she is, blames the maid and is like, oh, the maid probably took the glasses and yeah. she's trying to extort us for money, et cetera, whatever. Does this whole thing. And then she tells William Hurt that the glasses are in, very specifically, the top drawer <laughs> of the dresser in the boathouse. Yeah. Go get them for just, me. Just go get them. And you need to hurry up because she, you know, the maid may come back and get them and they won't be there. Luckily, Mickey Rourke's character re enters and says, <laughs> Yes. By the way, <laughs> some woman came to me said wanting she to knows know how you. to figure out how to rig up a bomb to a door. <laughs> you may want to look out for that. Uh, so he goes to the boathouse and sees that the door has, in fact, <laughs> been rigged <laughs> to explain when it's opened um smartly decides not to open the door and sort of lays in wait for her with a gun and she comes back and he you know feels again that he's one step ahead of her like i figured it out and i know that you were trying to kill me um and she so he says to her why don't you go open the door door. glasses and but she turns it on and is just like i love you and i've always loved you and how how dare you question me and you know this is you want me to go to the boathouse fine i'll go to the boathouse and it's a great scene the way that it's shot because because it's like every um, sort of foreground, background, and sort of main are filled. So we we are sort of standing with William Hurt's character. At this point, Oscar has come to the scene. And so he's sort he's of in the background. Right, way in the background, way in the background behind back. William Hurt. And then Maddie, uh, Maddie's sort of way in the foreground walking towards the boathouse. And she's, again, dressed, I think it's that same white dress. I think everybody's wore. in white, actually. And it's yeah, very dark. And it's very dark. So all you see is just sort of their bodies in, the, in this sort of mass of dark. And then she basically disappears into the darkness as she walks towards the yeah. boathouse. Um, and it's just a really beautifully shot scene. And then he sort of gets cold feet about and he sort of runs to stop her f- from opening the door. It's too late. The boathouse explodes. Yeah. He goes to jail <laughs> <laughs> for murder. Basically spends his time in prison trying to figure out how she did it because she's she's still alive. I know she's still alive. And right. She must have, you know, there's another body there and she must have switch the body with someone else and blah, 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 blah. And like you said, Oscar, the police officer is just like, that doesn't make any sense. That's <laughs> right. insane. And then it's some time passes because he's grown a beard in prison. <laughs> and he gets the yearbook of her high, her high school yearbook. And he turns the pages looking for Maddie. What was her maiden name? Uh, Tyler. Tyler. Maddie mm-hmm. Tyler. And boom, the picture is not her. <laughs> no, it's, it's her friend. It's her friend we've met earlier that we met earlier. And then he flips and finds her, and I don't even remember what her real name is. Marianne something. And, you know, smiling lovingly in her photo. And, and that's sort of, so he was right that, you know, it was a total conspiracy the whole time. Yeah. And she had killed her friend and used her body and her identity. And and again, you, you look back at the film and you realize that she had contingency plans. All over the place. For everything. Yeah. Because I think that scene at the boathouse, I think... What was supposed to happen was he was going to go to the boathouse, open the door, the explosion would go off. And it would look like both of them died. The friend's body was already in the boathouse. Mm -hmm. It would look like they both died in the explosion. Mm -hmm. Case closed. 
that didn't happen, but she was prepared for that too. Mm-hmm. So even when he says go open the boathouse, like okay, so she does that and somehow yeah manages to sneak off as the boathouse explodes. Right. Like yeah, she's terrifying when you think about it. She is. And so we find her on a lovely island somewhere, drinking a tropical drink in the sun. Not happy. Well, that's that's the little ambiguous note where it's like, did she really love him? Did she really care about him? I don't know that it was. I mean, she might have enjoyed the sex. I don't know that she loved him. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he was. I'm with you. I don't find him very lovable. No. So I have trouble thinking that she actually cared about him at all. I think all. she's just bored. I think... <laughs> She's she's pulled off her right, big you, plan. You've architected, you know, this whole thing over what twenty something years or however long you've been doing mm-hmm. this, and now it's over. That's a that's a big come down. It's like, what do you do now? Well, it's you know, she's at the end of that trolley line right. that uh, that Keys talked about in Double Indemnity. She but got she there lives. alone, but yeah, and she has her money and she has her exotic island. Now what? <laughs> okay, any final thoughts on this one? I mean, you you can't have ended these two movies with increased respect for the male of the species. I didn't have that much going into it. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, (laughs) here's the thing. Any man willing to commit murder because a woman is hot and she told you to or she asked you to, I don't feel bad for you. I just, like, you... Well, there was money, too. There was money, but it was more about the hot chick and the money. (laughs) So, yeah, I just... I do think that's one of the great things about film noir is that sort of everybody gets what they deserve. Yeah. Because everybody sort of deserves shit. <laughs> like, nobody really deserves to be happy. And for the most part, they're not at the ends of these movies. Well, and anytime you're in the middle of doing something and a sad clown drives by... Oh, yes. <laughs> immediately stop what you're doing. Because that is a sign from the universe saying, no. <laughs> you are a clown. <laughs> You're on a dark path, friend. <laughs> You're going to want to turn around. That's a that's a weird insert. It's a weird insert. And right after that, too, there's, when we go back to Maddie, I think it's, I think it's the night of the murder. There's a shot of a spider in the middle of the web. Mm-hmm. And then Kasdan cuts to Maddie. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so there's stuff like that that yeah. is, I think, a little bit first director yeah. overreaching. But for the most part, I think this is like a brilliant debut. No, it's, yeah, this it's is really well done. such a confident, yeah. well-directed film. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the clown? Why would you be the clown? Men in general? <laughs> no, the clown is the omen trying <laughs> oh. to, you know, snap you out of your vagina fucking <laughs> hypnosis. I don't know what the hell it is, but just like, yeah, you need to, yeah, it's a problem. And I was I was going to ask you who wins the femme fatale face-off, but it sounds like you've, oh, Kathleen you've Turner. I mean, she lives. placed your bet already. She lives, she gets her money, she goes to the exotic land. <laughs> She wins hands down. That That's just not a question. So she could take Barbara Stanwyck. She could absolutely take Barbara Stanwyck. She would beat Barbara Stanwyck up with her own damn anklet. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's not really a contest. It really isn't. And again, like, she wrote it in her yearbook. That's some boss bitch shit, man. Like, that's just, I love it. Respect. Much respect. So much respect. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. 
Nakia, my plan for the month of December, and, and I want to get your, your sign off on this. Well, I never like your plan, so <laughs> I can tell you now, I, I do not sign off. I thought we would watch Christmas movies that aren't about Christmas all month long. <laughs> okay. Uh, these are these are movies that take place at Christmas time, but they are not primarily, or in some cases, even remotely about Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I thought we would start with what is the quintessential example of that. We will watch Die Hard. Haven't I seen Die Hard? Okay, we have had this fight more times than I can count. (laughs) I've seen it. You haven't. You and I were going to watch it when we were doing this for the blog. Mm -hmm. We started to watch it. We might have gotten 45 minutes into the movie. Doesn't that count? And then there was some problem, and we stopped watching it. And you have never seen all of Die Hard. So here's what happened. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Uh, McLean and a wife beater goes (laughs) to visit his wife at her job, Nakatomi Plaza. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And then Snape and grown-up children of the corn (laughs) show up to, like, kidnap the Japanese guy. And then they have the black guy trying to figure out, like, the computer codes for something, which was fairly progressive for 19, what? Uh, 86, maybe. Black guy on the computer, that's awesome. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And so then McLean and his wife, Beater, and I believe he's barefoot, is, like, (laughs) roaming through the building, knocking off the grown-up children of the corn one by one <laughs> and I think he throws one of them out of a window and it falls on the cop car of the guy from um, Family Matters and there's a dude in the limo that's listening to Stevie Wonder I believe really loudly you, you have, I admit you have retained See? an awful lot so I feel however like... everything you've just described is from like the first 45 minutes of this movie which supports my contention that you have never seen all of Die Hard. But that's enough for me to figure a conversation about it, and I feel like that's all that this How's the movie is. end? I'm assuming that Snape dies, and <laughs> um, he like gets back with his wife, and hopefully puts on a shirt and some shoes. And, you know, Family Matters guy saves the day, too. And, like, wasn't he buying snacks or some shit? Like, I feel like... <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Again, though, that's all the first half of the movie. Okay, alright. But yeah, we're gonna watch the whole thing this time. I'm not interested in that at all. I know. Really. I know. We're going to do it anyway. Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> See, I've seen this. I've totally seen it. yippee ki motherfucker. Yeah, there you go. So that's all I need. I don't, I don't actually need to finish it. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you'll also find our contact info, our Facebook feed, our Twitter feed, and all of that nonsense. Um, we encourage you to leave a comment on the episode or to suggest a movie that Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete like Die Hard. Until then, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch, sometimes twice. Goodbye, baby. (laughs) Goodbye, baby. Nice job, baby. (laughs) It's a good episode, baby. I'd kill you for money, baby. (laughs) I know, baby. (laughs) You don't even need the money. (laughs) Quick addendum. You should fit this in somewhere. I want to appear on your podcast saying, I killed him for money and for a woman. I didn't get the money. I didn't get the woman. Thanks again.